and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, June the 29th, 2023, the last week of June, uh, just before July 4th. Uh, my favorite uh, interview, I have to say, and I I don't want to demean the other interviews in June, but my favorite interview on Keen on this month was with Christian Cooper. Everybody knows him as the Central Park birder, of course, who was involved in a, an enormously significant racial incident in the park. Uh, but he came on the show to talk about his new book, uh, Better Living Through Birding, Notes from a Black Man in the Natural World. It's a bestseller. I mean, of course, there's lots to talk about him being a black man and uh, the issue of race and racism in America. But I thought one of, one of the, the most memorable aspects of our conversation was his love of birding and of America and of nature in general. Of course, in that sense, Cooper is very much part of a very long American tradition, right back to its foundations. We all know John James Audubon, um, the French-American artist who, in a sense, in some people's mind, I guess, discovered American um, nature. There is now uh, the Audubon Society named after him. But before uh, John James Audubon, there was somebody else, somebody I personally, I have to admit, hadn't heard of, Mark Catesby, uh, a man of uh, an English naturalist who studied the flora and fauna of the New World in the 18th century. And there's a new book out about him, uh, Nature's Messenger, Mark Catesby and His Adventures in a New World. And it's by a, a previous guest on the show. I'm thrilled to have him back. Uh, Patrick uh, Dean was on the show back in November 2021 talking about uh, his previous book, A Window to Heaven, uh, a book about uh, a remarkable mountaineer, Hudson Stuck. And now we have uh, another book about another remarkable American, uh, I guess he's an American or Anglo-American naturalist, uh, Mark uh, Catesby. Uh, and uh, Patrick is joining us from Monteagle, Tennessee, where he runs uh, a Rail to Trails um, public interest group. Patrick, congratulations on the new book. Thanks so much, Andrew. It's great to be back with you. So I uh, apologize for the rather long-winded introduction. My intros are always long-winded. That was particularly long-winded. Is there, shall we say, a rail-to-trail connection between uh, Catesby and Audubon and perhaps uh, Christian Cooper? Is this the thing that, in your mind, Patrick, defines American history, its appreciation of nature, love of other species? appreciation or the reverse andrew yes definitely i know you've talked to enough people talking about uh, the uh, the damage that's been done to the natural world in, in the united states and in america and in the world um but certainly there's a through line of of love of nature and concern for nature you know whether it's thomas jefferson uh compiling bird lists or um william bartram roaming through the southeast in the 1770s or my guy mark catesby who came here in the 17 17- teens and 1720s 
So tell me a little bit about this guy. Why did you decide to write a book about him? One of the uh, one of the amusing things I've discovered is that he had a mother called Elizabeth Jekyll, but there was nothing much Jekyll and Hyde about him, was there? <laughs> no, the Jekylls uh, uh, gave him probably his interest in botany, but they were distinguished family. Both sides of his family were landed gentry um, in Essex and uh, Suffolk and um he, he, he seemed to have always almost been born with a passion for natural history. Uh, he got himself over to uh, Virginia first for seven years where he roamed around and, and collected specimens and uh, did some painting and made a reputation for himself as a naturalist and then worked his way back over in 1722 to South Carolina where he, he embarked seriously on the research that would lead to his, um, his masterpiece, The Natural History of the Carolinas. Yeah, that's his great masterpiece, which is still available online if you go to Google Books. Was he, I mean, he was, in my mind, as much an artist as a scientist, or I guess back in the 18th century, um, Patrick, the distinction between art and science was much less clear. That's definitely true. You know, I think that uh, one of the things that really sort of cements his place for me uh, and to many others is that he was able to not only um, come to America you know, and, and describe all these animals and write about them and tell what they lived on and uh, their habitats and all that. But he also drew and painted some of the very first images that the West had ever had of, you know, of woodpeckers and uh, magnolia trees and all that sort of thing. So yes, he was a, um, he was a very potent combination of the naturalist and the artist and the explorer. And he's known more today as an artist than he is as a naturalist actually. Patrick, of course, America symbolically and literally was represented by 18th century philosophers, Locke in particular, as the original society, the foundational society, a, a natural world. This was the world that, um, that Catesby came to. Of course, though, it, it wasn't uninhabited. There were Native Americans there. How aware of them was he? Very much so. Um, when he came to Virginia on his first trip, he went to the western uh, parts of the state, um, interacted with Native Americans during that time and spent a lot of time in South Carolina. In 1723, he went out to um, Fort Moore, which is on the frontier, the western frontier in 1723 is where Augusta, Georgia is today. So, um, Ruined by a golf course. That's right. <laughs> so he spent a great deal of time with the, the Native Americans. He he slept in their huts. He hired them to help him with his researches. They would build huts, bark huts over him when it started to rain to keep his specimens and his art supplies dry. You know, they hunted bison together. So um, he spent a great deal of time with them and, he's, and his writings about them are a, a really important, very early ethnographic uh, study of the tribes of, of the Carolina colony. How did he present them? The classic Anglo take on these peoples was they, they were primitive and that Europeans were coming to civilize them. Did he think of them in those terms? Slightly more nuanced than that. I mean, he did, he would refer to them as savages. He did find plenty to criticize in the way they lived, but he also was very um, empathetic with how they lived and uh, what they ate and all their customs. He gave them a lot of credit for the skills they had. Uh, he was very admiring of them in certain ways when he described, you know, how they lived and, and how they worked. 
he came as a scientist, as a man educated in Britain, which at the time, I guess, intellectually was one of the more advanced places in the world. Was he the guy educating these Native Americans about nature or was the reverse true? I don't think he was educating them at all. I do think that he would um, draw from their knowledge. Uh, we have several instances in the natural history where he cites native uh, sources or native experts about, you know, what what certain plants were good for, what certain herbs were good for medicinally. Um, it's the same way with the enslaved Africans that he came across in his in his time over here. So again, he has this um, European worldview where they are savages, but he also is able to to see what contributions they have and uh, what he can learn from them. I want, of course, get to the issue of slavery and uh, and of the African peoples in America. Um, but before we do that, I, I have to admit that uh, I'm not always envious of historical figures, but I do have an envy of someone like Catesby in the sense that I'd love to have seen this America of the early 18th century. What was it like, Patrick? Was it as abundant, as cornucopian, as... As, as, as we're led to believe? In a lot of ways, it was. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't the untamed, unspoiled, you know, perfect nature that the West has always said it was. I mean, the, the, you know, the indigenous people have been here for thousands of years and they put their own stamp on, on the landscape. It wasn't just you know, natural that both uh, Catesby and Bartram found these glades of you know, uh, almost park-like landscapes with huge trees here and there, you know, that was created by the indigenous uh, people who had been here for so long. But yes, it was teeming with wildlife. The, the rivers and oceans were, were just overflowing with, with uh, you know, creatures. And yeah, it was much more, obviously much more bountiful, plentiful than it is today. But yes, that, that part of it is pretty accurate. It came, of course, from a, a very religious England, a society divided in some ways by religion, although everyone was religious, pre-Darwin, of course. He could be fitted in, I guess, to the narrative of English naturalists. Did he have a, a biblical take on this place that he found himself? Only in the sense that he would, he would sometimes uh, um, attribute certain things to providence. I mean, you know, he didn't actually... He never, we, we never had any instances where he talks about it in a biblical sense, you know, the Garden of Eden or any of that sort of thing or places in that sort of theological framework. He wasn't much of a theologian, but he would he would cite certain you know, events or happenings or miracles in his mind to to God or, or providence, that sort of thing. I think he showed up originally in what was then known as Charlestown, which is now, of course, called Charleston, one of the centers of slavery and of um, of all the injustices of American history. What was Charlestown like when uh, when uh, Catesby showed up in the early 18th century? It was it was tiny. Um, it was pretty much confined to the original fortification walls that had been built around it, you know, 50 years before when they really started Charleston, um, the late 1670, 1675. Um, very insular. And, uh, you know, outside of Charleston, you had the plantation, the plantations of the low country outside it. And then 50 miles from the ocean is wilderness, basically. It's, you know, it's the, it's, as far as the Charlestonians were concerned, you know, that was the end of the world. And so um, very small, 
very densely, you know, contained in one small area. Um, so he, when he was, when he left Charleston to go toward Fort Moore, he was on Indian paths with fur traders and there were almost no other um, Europeans in that part of the country at all. You mentioned plantations, uh, Patrick. What did they look like? Was there already, at, when he arrived, a, a plantation economy with, with, with slave labor? They were, it was developing. One of the fascinating things about Catesby's time is how many things were just on the verge of taking off. Um, and one of them was the plantation economy in South Carolina. They were still looking around for that one cash crop that was going to be, that was going to make them like, you know, Barbados and then Jamaica had been, uh, you know, the richest colonies in the, in the new world because of sugarcane. And uh, they tried sugarcane in South Carolina. They were still barely experimenting with that, but they were at this point, they're looking for that one crop. It hadn't become rice yet. So that was still, that was still developing. It was a very different kind of colonialist in Charlestown from uh, the settlements in the north in New England. It, it, that's my impression as a non-specialist. Is that fair, um, Patrick? The southern uh, colonialists were much more aristocratic, uh, perhaps a little bit more tolerant, but also, of course, the pioneers of slavery. Yes, that's, that's one of the more interesting sort of things that I've sort of uh, realized researching the book. You know, we think of the colonies as this monolith and you know, South Carolina is more like, you know, Massachusetts or Virginia. Um, our history jumps from, you know, almost from Plymouth Rock to, um, you know, uh, Bunker Hill almost. But at this point in the early 18th century, um, the economic power, as I just mentioned, was all in the South. You know, it was... It was the Caribbean uh, islands and colonies who had who were funneling all the wealth back to England. And South Carolina was an outpost of that. Um, most of the early plantation owners in South Carolina were Barbadian by heritage. I think five of the first seven governors had Bar Barbadian connections. So it was that lifestyle. It was a it was a very sort of uh, nouveau riche, high living, um, not a lot of intellectual achievement, but uh, lots of, of drinking and, and partying and all that sort of thing. And so um, South Carolina was much more like a Caribbean outpost than it was its, its Northern brethren like Virginia or, uh, or Massachusetts. Certainly didn't have that dourness, that um, <laughs> e e evangelical grayness of, of, of yeah. Massachusetts. For sure. Calvinism. I mean, was it mostly, of course, the England he came from was a very, divided one religiously was it a was it catholic were there many were, i mean were, were most of the uh the settlers in charleston were they catholic or protestant uh, so the anglican church did have a pretty good hold there but there were catholics um there were the the french huguenots were there um there was a decent little german population too so it was a very a very diverse very cosmopolitan um place by american standards by colonial standards so in, in 1722, when he stepped ashore in Charlestown, what was his, so to speak, business model? Was someone employing him? How did he get there? How did he pay for this expedition, this adventure? There were, so by the time he came back from Virginia in 1719, there was a group of um, wealthy and influential people in England who were anxious to send uh, talented, knowledgeable people 
to the far reaches of the colonies, uh, whether that was Africa or India or, or North America, um, because they knew there was all these incredible uh, natural history discoveries to be made. And uh, Catesby, when he came back from Virginia, had, had sort of uh, networked, so to speak, and sort of made a name for himself. And so these, these powerful people, there were about nine that ended up being his chief sponsors, uh, proposed to him that they fund his way over to, to South Carolina to, to A, discover what was there, and B, to send back specimens and plantings and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, dead birds and things like that, as well as um, whatever he else he thought was interesting. He was involved with the Royal Society, which was, of course, enormously influential both then and now, probably back then more influential. Did he know Newton? How, how does Newton fit into the narrative? We don't have any, we don't have any evidence that he did, but um, Newton was a little bit before his time in terms of his actual thunder in the background. I don't know if you heard that or not. Um, that was Catesby. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, Newton was, was president of the Royal Society in 1722 when Catesby arrived in England, but by the time he actually had most of his dealings with the society after he came back in the 1730s, I think uh, Newton uh, was off the scene. So we don't have any evidence that they ever met, but um, you know, he could well have had connections with the Royal Society. He may have gone to the coffee houses you know, where the Royal Society uh, liked to congregate. Um, there was a lot of intellectual crossover there, whether or not he, uh, but as I say, whether, whether or not he knew Newton, we just don't know. Newton, of course, is one of the great scientists in history, as Darwin is. H how should we remember Catesby as, shall we say, an, an artist, the writer of this masterpiece, The Natural History of Carolina, Florida and the Bahama Islands, as a taxonomist? Was there any theory? Was he interested in the hard sciences? Oh, absolutely. He, uh, he took very careful um, notes and made very, very specific observations about all of the, the natural history that he, that he, uh, you know, he included in the natural history. Again, whether it was what they ate, he was one of the first to illustrate and put together um, birds with the plants that they ate. Or, um, uh, you know, he, he put the, he noticed that the, the tree that he was, specific tree only grew where buffalo bison uh, congregated and left droppings. And so he put those two together in the illustration that he did. So he was a proto-ecologist in that way. He was thinking about noticing and writing about the interrelationships between the plants and animals, between, um, you know, birds and the plants, um, mammals and where they lived. Um, so yes, he's a, he's a direct descendant or precedent of people like Alexander von Humboldt of, uh, Darwin, people like that who would sort of kick off that revolution in our thinking that really comes full circle in the 70s with the environmental movement and the, the new science of ecology. You call him a proto-ecologist, Patrick. Did he have any conception, do you think, of the kind of damage that humans would do to nature? He was already noticing how uh, certain... Uh, Plants, trees, for example, in uh, in the Bahamas were being logged out. Um, so yes, he was already one of the things he noticed. Again, he was a very acute observer of those things. He he could tell that uh, the landscape was changing before his eyes, and he was documenting documenting it as he went. Did he have a, a moral message? Was there a warning saying that this is the natural world, this is God's world? 
You know, I'm not sure that he ever sort of got that overt about it. Um, I think if you had asked him, he would definitely say that it, it would, it's worth caring for. Um, okay. Because again, he was so passionate about all of it and uh, wanted to know as much as he could about everything in North America um, from Virginia all the way down to, uh, to South Carolina and in the Caribbean. He went to Jamaica and the Bahamas and Cuba and several other islands. So uh, endless curiosity and uh, certainly cared a lot about it. You say that it set him apart, his endless curiosity. Was he also, I know this is a rather broad word, a humanist. I mean, we've talked about his uh, conversations with Native Americans, his willingness to treat them as relative equals. What about enslaved Africans? I know you touch on this in the book in terms of the plantation economy that was starting. Did he understand the profound injustice of slavery, the absurdity of it, the evilness of it? We have hints about that, um, and we have a sort of confusing, baffling sort of record to deal with. Um, for instance, he makes he makes these comments about his friend William Byrd II in Virginia, who was um, un even unusually for the time uh, brutal to the enslaved Africans that he owned. Um, Catesby had a couple of pretty sarcastic cutting things to say about about that behavior. Um, and we also know, as I mentioned before, we know that not only did he um, stay with the plantation owners and befriend them and, and advise them on what trees to plant and all that, but we also know that he went around behind the plantation houses and went to the enslaved Africans' uh, places, to their gardens, to find out what they grew for food and for medicine. And he cites them as he does the indigenous people. He, he cites their knowledge. Um, he even refers to an esteemed Negro doctor, which is an almost unheard of honorific for any Westerner to to uh, to bestow on um, a, sl a slave and endowed an enslaved African. Um, but we also know we have this one little thing where he decides and writes letters to his uh, uh, benefactor back in London, asking him to credit his accounts uh, 20 pounds so that he might buy a Negro boy, quote unquote, to help him in his work. Um, and that's literally all we know about that. We know nothing else about that whole relationship, how it unfolded. We don't know if he followed through and if he freed the boy when he came back to England. We, we know nothing. So we're left asking a lot of questions about that. So that's the sort of mixed record that we have in terms of Catesby and the enslaved Africans that he dealt with. Well, one thinks of Darwin, Patrick, of course, he he traveled he had this remarkable trip where he discovered the world and then he went back to his desk and spent the rest of his life writing about it and thinking about it. Is that true of Catesby as well? What happened when he went back to England after this adventure in the new world? Well, when he came back, he, he learned that he couldn't really afford to have anyone else produce his, his book for him. So he taught himself etching and set to work uh, writing and etching and coloring or overseeing the coloring of this massive, magnificent book by himself. It took him from 1731 to 1747 <laughs> to finish all 10 uh, volumes, plus the appendix that he decided to add to it. Um, it was the most expensive botanical work of the age. It was cost 20 guineas, which was um, a year's wages for a laborer in the British Isles at that time. Um, and it was a, it was a smash. I mean, people thought it was, they called it, the Royal Society called it the, gl the glorious and magnificent work. 
So, um, and so he publishes the last volume in 1747 and two years later he dies. So um, we'll, we'll never know what he would have done with himself once the, once the natural history was finished. What questions you, you mentioned, you, you, there are lots of questions about slavery and this relationship with the slave boy that he may or may not have bought. What other questions are outstanding, uh, Patrick, that we don't know about Catesby, that you oh, weren't right. able to discover in your adventure, in, in your new book, Nature's Messenger? Right. Well, one obvious one is what he looked like, because we have no known images of Catesby at all. Yeah, um, when you go to the uh, Wikipedia page, there's no photo. <laughs> No, no, no portraits. Given the success of the book, I'm surprised no one painted him. It is very surprising. I uh, I took the biographer's license of, of borrowing from Gainsborough, who coincidentally was was from uh, Sudbury in Suffolk, the same town that Catesby was, although 20 years later, um, who painted young Mr. and Mrs. Andrews, a landed uh, a couple of the landed gentry, um, just a little bit later, and I sort of used Mr. Andrews as my model for what I thought. Uh, young Casey would look like with his tricorn hat and his britches and all that sort of thing. But uh, that's certainly on the top of the things we'd, we'd all like to know about. Mr. Describe K. this because a lot of people are going to be listening to the show uh, in, just in audio rather than in video. Um, right. Patrick, what, what do you think he looked like? Well, we know he was tall and slender um, and uh, uh, sort of rangy looking. You know, he had a, um, uh, a sharp... Uh, expression, but it could be kind when he needed to, when he wanted to. Um, you know, Mr. Andrews is, uh, as I said, he has, he has uh, knee bridges, you know, the traditional 18th century uh, thing that we think of when we think of colonialists, you know, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, all those guys with the, the white stockings and the, and the shoes and all that. And so, um, although Mr. Andrews seems a lot more self-satisfied than, than I imagine Caseby being, I think Caseby is a little more, uh, reserved than the the sort of smugness of of Mr. Andrews, if you get to see. We we put uh my publisher Pegasus Books put the portrait in in the in the book so people can can have a look if they want to. Uh your previous book, as I said, you you were on the show a couple of years ago uh talking about uh, uh a window to heaven about um Hudson Stark. He he looks much more like the traditional naturalist adventure of, of the 19th, uh, late 19th, early 20th century. What is it about these men um, that are so remarkable, the Hudson Starks and the Mark Catesby's of the world, Patrick, for you to dedicate a significant part of your life to writing books about them? What's so exciting? You're, as I said, your day job is as a, as a naturalist. You're, you run a, a rail-to-trail uh, uh, public interest uh, group in in Tennessee? Well, I think, you know, the I was really fortunate in both cases because you've got the intersection of a really a vivid personality with a fascinating social milieu, fascinating time in history uh, to deal with. And so um, not to mention, of course, the whole nature thing. They both were had, um, you know, extensive interactions with the wilder world. And that that always intrigues me. Um, I'm an outdoorsy kind of guy and I do that stuff. And so though not at Stuck's level, of course, I, I haven't climbed an ollie or anything like that. But um, so the intersection of that, that natural world, that exploration instinct with the surrounding social uh, history, you know, all the fascinating things that were going on in, in Alaska of 1905 
for for South Carolina in 1722, um, you know, the gold rush, uh, pirates. You know, there's so many fascinating aspects you can bring in when you're talking about this time. And then you can center around this fascinating person who has these uh, just really unique uh, personal qualities. And so that, that makes for a, a really potent mix and a really uh, tantalizing mixture for me. I mentioned that his mother was called Elizabeth Jekyll. That's all we know about her. Everyone else is is male here. The Hudson Stark, um, Mark Catesby, even Christian Cooper and yourself. Were there women? Did he have... Uh, is, is, are there female in your narrative in Nature's Messenger, Patrick? Absolutely. One especially that I was so glad to learn about and then be able to, to talk about in the book um, was an artist named Maria Sibylla Marion who um, went to... Uh, Suriname with her daughter with no men uh, in the 1600s, which was almost unheard of um, and produced beautiful, beautiful illustrations. Her fascination was with the life cycle of insects and metamorphosis. And so she would do uh, paintings similar to Catesby's in that they, they posed insects with the plants that they had relationships with. And she'd, she'd throw in a snake or a salamander or something. And it's just vividly bright, bold, beautiful illustrations that we think influenced Catesby's, uh, Catesby's style when he came to, to do his own uh, artistic representations of what he'd, what he'd seen in the new world. So yes, they were rare, but, but uh, they were there for sure. I'd love to find 